I want to start with a scene from my fa- one of my favorite movies, one of the best movies of, of my, my time, which is Princess Bride. Now, you don't get to see it on TV because, uh, well, our projector's so lame right now, uh, it'll all be washed out, but it's the, it's the dialogue I want you to hear. It's the dialogue I want you to hear. So in uh, Princess Bride, I think most of you have probably seen it. If you haven't, um, it's PG with the exception of a little bit of language, it's pretty family-friendly. I affirm the film. Uh, so uh, I encourage you to watch it. <clears throat> but in the film, there, there arrives this um, match of wits between the mysterious man in black and the Sicilian known as Vizzini. And uh, this is how the conversation goes. It's, um, they sit down... And the man in black, he takes two goblets of wine behind him and he puts deadly iocane powder in, in the goblets and, or in a goblet, presumably, and, and then does the old switcheroo. And then this is the dialogue that ensues. He says, the battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. And Vicini says, but it's so simple. All I have to do is divine from what I know about you. Are you the sort of man who would put poison into his own goblet or the enemy's? Now, a clever man would put poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he has been given. I am not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. Man in black says, you've made your decision then. Mazzini says, not remotely. Because iocane powder comes from Australia, and as everyone knows, Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them, as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. To which the man says, you truly have a dizzying intellect. And he says, wait till I get started. Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. Now you're stalling. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? He says. You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong, so you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you have been studied, and in studying you've learned that man is mortal, so you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. The conversation goes on a little bit longer. For the one person here who hasn't seen it, I don't want to ruin it. I go home and watch it. It's uh, I have a copy. You can borrow it. But what it highlights in this conversation that I, I want to bring out for us is sometimes what seems most obvious to us is not true. Sometimes the clearest, simplest, clearly truth is not as clear as we'd like to think, and in fact may in fact not be true. And I think we're going to see that in the text this morning. We're going to see occasions where we will be attracted to one conclusion about the Lord. Um, Though I want to stop and say, let's think through this clearly. Is Is that truly how the Lord works? And we'll see what we learn from the Lord there. So 
Uh, we're going to be, like I said, in the 39th chapter. If you're joining us for the first time in Genesis, we're working through the life of Joseph and uh, where we are in the account. Joseph was one of the youngest sons of Jacob. He was by far Jacob's favorite son. Jacob doted on him and uh, showed favoritism among all his brothers. So Joseph had 12 other, 11 other brothers, and they all knew that Joseph was the favorite. And in this uh, dysfunctional household where the preference was so obvious, a spirit of animosity grew and hatred grew between the brothers and Joseph. Joseph was arrogant uh, in the way he enjoyed the favoritism, and the brothers harbored bitterness. And so at some point in the story, uh, Joseph gets a dream, and the dream comes from the Lord. He gets two, in fact. And the dream is, is that the Lord will one day uh, glorify Joseph above his brethren. And that is sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back. And at the first opportunity that the brothers get, uh, they take Joseph, they throw him in a pit, they take his cloak, um, they end up selling Joseph into slavery, and then they put goat's blood on the, on the coat and convince their father that Joseph was killed. And we're picking the story up uh, as Joseph is entering servitude as a slave in Egypt. Now, the 38th chapter, which was what we talked about last week, that's kind of uh, shows up in the middle of the story, almost like a commercial break. And uh, that's the story of one of Joseph's oldest brothers, Judah, going off and making his way in the world kind of without the Lord, making his own decisions and his own lifestyle choices and doing that all away from his family and away from the guidance of God. And then we're returning now back to the story of Joseph. Um, But if you want to think about it, these stories, so Joseph's entering slavery as Judah, his oldest brother, is leaving for his own life and his own decisions. So let's read. Uh, I'll read one through six. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. The theme of this section has got to be the Lord was with Joseph. That's, that shows up in the second verse. Actually, the word, the Lord's name, and this is the Lord's proper name, his name shows up five times in five verses. Two, three, four, five, six. And it's really the first time in the story that God has made much of a presence. The only other time we've seen anything about the Lord, if you don't count the dreams he received, the only other time we, we hear anything about the Lord is when the Lord smites the sons of Judah. It's the only other time in the past three chapters that God shows up. 
But in this account, it's painfully obvious that God is not only showing up, but he's, he's crashing into the narrative of Joseph. He hasn't been anywhere as far as the text goes. And then all of a sudden, he's here and he shows up five times. In verse 2, we see the Lord was with Joseph. In verse 3, we see that the master, Potiphar, the Egyptian, saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord gave him success. And then in verse 5, we see that the Lord's name shows up twice again. That the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptians on account of Joseph, and that everything that Joseph put his hands to, both in the field and in the home, were blessed by the Lord. It's the Bible's way of saying the Lord was with Joseph. I mean, it's, you say it five times so that we get it. Not only that, did you notice the degree that's expressed in the Scriptures? So it isn't simply that the Lord was with Joseph, but look at the superlative degree of blessing. Verse 2, he prospered. It says when, in verse 3, when the, when, he, when the master saw that the Lord was with him, it says, and that the Lord had given him success in what? In everything he did. In everything he did. At the end of verse 4, it says that the master had entrusted to his care everything he owned. In verse 5, it says all that he owned was given to Joseph. And it says that the blessings fell on everything that Potiphar had, both in the field and in the house. And then in verse 6, so he left Joseph's care of everything. He didn't concern himself with anything but what he would eat. So not only do we see emphatically that the Lord is with Joseph, but we see emphatically that that result is, is that everything is blessed. Joseph has the Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. So, when asked, why is the house of Potiphar blessed? Our answer is, because the Lord was with Joseph. Our answer is not, because Joseph was smart, or because Joseph was a hard worker, or because he was virtuous, or because he had talent, or a management degree, or Microsoft certification, or whatever. The reason the household of Potiphar prospered, the Bible wants you to know, this is not so much about Joseph as it is about the fact that the Lord was with Joseph. I certainly imagine that he was not a buffoon or a miscreant, but the, Lord, the Bible wants you to know, but that is not why the house was blessed. The house was blessed because of the Lord. Even, even the master sees this. Even Potiphar sees this. It says in the book that the Egyptian Potiphar saw that, jo- that the Lord was with Joseph. So what does this teach us? What does this teach us that we can kind of walk away with? I mean, obviously we know informationally, well, I guess that means the Lord was with Joseph, but what does this teach us, what does this teach you that you can use on Monday in your life? There is at one level, there is a teaching that matters, and, and we won't, this matters, especially as you read more and more of Scripture. There's just a truth that God God loves people, and he's with people, and he, he takes care of Joseph. And I don't want to minimize that. Uh, we're not gonna, that's not the heart of what we're talking about this morning, but it's there. And that should speak into your life. But 
when we look at this, when we look at this teaching, we can be tempted towards something that seems to be the obvious, clear answer. And certainly many people have been tempted to say this from this text or from texts like this. They look at this occasion where the Lord is present with somebody and there's great blessing, and their temptation of application is to say that the Lord, if, you're, if the Lord is with you, you will be blessed. You see that? It's simple math. Clearly not choose the wine in front of you. It's right there in front of us. If the Lord is with you, you will be blessed. That's what it says in the text, in fact. The Lord was with Joseph. And was there a little bit of blessing or a lot of blessing? There was a lot of blessing, overwhelming blessing. Superlative blessing is what comes here. And we can be inclined at first look to say that. If the Lord is with us, we should be blessed. Except that we're missing something if this is what we see in the story. We're missing a detail. I'll call it a detail. It's hardly a detail. It's a major element of the story. It's a glaring reality of the story that we're missing, and that is that Joseph is a slave in Egypt. So we can look and go, wow, and we can almost look enviously on the life of Joseph. Look at the wonderful way the Lord has blessed Joseph and be forgetful of the fact that Joseph was betrayed, nearly murdered, thrown into a pit, sold to slave traders who brought him to a distant country and sold him into the servitude of Potiphar. Nobody's looking for Joseph. He's not writing letters home. He's not saying, like, after this band camp this summer, I get to go back. He's stuck as a slave in Egypt, which makes it challenging for us to say, the Lord blesses those he's with. Doesn't it? If the Lord's with you, you'll be blessed. We could just as easily say, if the Lord's with you, you might be humbled and thrown into prison, made a slave, live a sad life. We, we see what we want to see. Here's another problem with a conclusion, like if the Lord's with you, you'll be blessed. What's going to happen? What should happen should this story turn south? What happens in your life? Things are going well. Promotion. Car. You name it. Things are going well. And your, the theological response that you begin to foster is, things are going well, therefore the Lord must be with me. It's very easy to foster this theology. Things are going well, therefore the Lord must be with me. Well, let me ask you this. What happens when it goes south for you? What happens when you lose that job or you lose that car or your great children turn out not to be so great or your great marriage turns out not to be so great or your great house all of a sudden is underwater? What, what now? Is the Lord with you? Or has the Lord abandoned you? Do you see the crisis you're in now? Sometimes on bright sunny days, we build a heresy that haunts us in dark days. Here's another question. Why must we equate God's blessing with earthly material metrics? That's a question. Why, why should we assume in the mind of the Lord that $2 is better than $1? What does he care? Why should we assume in the mind of the Lord that two goats is better than one goat? That more material blessing is better than less material blessing. 
That, that kind of thinking breeds a classic prosperity gospel, which then begins to, if we follow that road, if we follow the Lord loves you more because you're getting more, then we have to say, well, the wealthiest and richest must be the holiest, which is obviously not true. And we need to say that the poorest and most destitute are obviously the wickedest, which is obviously not the truth. Doesn't the Lord, in fact, say, blessed are the poor? Doesn't the Lord, in fact, say, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? God doesn't use the earthly metrics of blessing that we use. Now, some of you who are astute readers and critical thinkers may say, well, he did in this story, which I say, you got me. He does in this story. I think some of the reasons he does in this story and he does in the lives of people's stories sometimes is sometimes this is the only way that God can see, that people can see that God is in fact with them. So Joseph is among a pagan people and the way the Lord is making his presence known is by speaking about blessing in their language. So Potiphar knows that the Lord is with Joseph because God is speaking Potiphar's language. That's what's happening here. What's really happening here is is God is telling his own story. Don't you remember those dreams Joseph had? Joseph had these dreams that one day he was going to be glorified among his brethren. Right now, he's a slave in Egypt. God's working his will to tell his story. It just happens to be that Joseph is being blessed in all of it. But we shouldn't assume that a sign of faithfulness of God's presence with us is that we get material blessing. What about the prophets? Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Were they abundantly blessed with wealth? No. Jeremiah spent his ministry in a hole. And the king would like pull him out of the hole and say, tell me something good, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would say, I got nothing. And he'd get back in the hole. I'll see you next month. You better think of something good. That was the ministry of Jeremiah. What about the disciples? The Lord was with them. Were they richly blessed? No. What about, what about the Apostle Paul? Was he richly blessed? What about Christ himself? Was he richly blessed? In fact, if you think of the temptation of Christ in the desert, was it not Satan's temptation to say, I will richly bless you in every imaginable way, shape, and form if all you do is forsake the Lord and bow to me? It makes us sound like the evidence of being with God is not blessing. That there is not a correlation between God's presence in our lives and abundant material blessing. There are two ideas that in this case happen to fit into the story. So we can be tempted to say this. We can be tempted to say, if the Lord is with us, we will be blessed. But that is not truthful. This is a better truth. This is... If we want to know what is a truth that carries out of this story into Monday, it's this. It is a blessing to be with the Lord. That's it. It's a blessing to be with the Lord. It isn't so much if the Lord is with us, we're richly blessed. It's simply a blessing to be with the Lord. It's, it's enough that we are with the Lord. That's, that's kind of the felicity of this whole story. 
the, the, the warmth of the story, as odd as it is, that the, there's times in the story where it's so bright and so cheery, is because the Lord is with Joseph. That's the great encouragement. Imagine Joseph working, his, working as a slave and him knowing, I don't know why I'm here, I don't know why I'm betrayed, but I do know that the Lord is with me. That is encouraging. Just to know the Lord is with you. Just think of yourself. Right now in this story, Joseph has the Lord with him, though he's a slave in Egypt. Judah is off on his own. I don't know where he is at this very moment, at this very date in the text. I don't know whether his, the first or second or third son's being born, or whether his first son's being killed by God, or whether his second son's being killed by God, or whether his wife is dying, or whether he's being found out for his hypocrisy by sleeping with his daughter-in-law. I don't know which is that. I'm just saying, which would you rather be? With God and be Joseph? Or off on your own? It's a blessing to be with the Lord. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, says the Lord. And his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The Bible teaches his, its people, God's people, that it is a blessing just to be with God. We even see how we mess this up when we try to describe heaven. Streets of gold, big mansions. You know what heaven is? It's being with God. That's the blessing of paradise, is that we will be with God. Do we really need a mansion in heaven? It actually is a nauseating thought, the way that preoccupies our vision of paradise. It is a blessing to be with God. Let's keep looking. There's one more lie that shows up in this text. Uh, not, the lie doesn't show up in the text. That was a misspeak. The text is great. There's another place in the text where if we're not careful, we foster a lie. Whew. Let's read. Uh, I'll pick up around the end of six. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now, in this text, if you kind of open up a study guide or some commentaries or just discuss it, if you discuss it as a small group, this is likely, this is likely how uh, you might look at that conversation. If, if the question was, let's talk about Joseph, because this is certainly a merito- meritorious event for Joseph. He displays great virtue here. We should be proud of him. In the light of serious temptation, this is remarkable. And so when we look at the text and we say, well, what did Joseph do? Some some might be uh, inclined to say, well, he did three things. There's three laws he obeys here, or at least there's three laws he recognizes as being truth, and he, he picks the right side of it. The first thing he says to the woman is, 
I've, been, I've gained the trust of my master. I wouldn't want to forsake that trust. That's kind of the first idea that he, in his defense, is I, I, there's a spirit of trust here. Why would I jeopardize that? I mean, we could equate that to thou shalt not lie, right? And then the second thing he says is, and after all, my master has given me everything in the house. Every possession in the house is mine except for you. The whole idea is, is to take you would be stealing. It would be theft to take you because I've been given everything but you. That must say something about the way he treasures you. And so we could say that, you know, Joseph didn't want to be guilty of stealing either. And then there's this third thing. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And people will look at that and they'll say, you know, he's talking about adultery here. How could he do this and be adulterous? And, and I'm not saying that none of that is there. I'm saying what, when we read it that way, we, we walk away from the text with this feeling that the rules of God have been his defense. We put the rules of God in front and say, that's, that's the defense that Joseph has built is, I shouldn't lie, I shouldn't steal, and I should not commit adultery. Therefore, I can't do it. In other words, that the laws of God, his edicts, his commandments, are what's driving Joseph's obedience. That's... If we're not careful, that's how we read that. If we're not careful, that's how we try to live. We try to live by the rules of God. But I don't think that's what Joseph has done here. Now, we see rules here, but I don't think he's being driven to obey the rules. In fact, I don't think these rules really hold up for very long in life. Not day after day, it says, day after day she haunted him. Maybe the rules show up. I mean, come on, we're people. Don't eat the cookie. That works the first time you pass the island in the kitchen. But the 12th time, you've eaten eight of them. Right? Because the rule, the rule is weak. The command is weak. And the flesh is weak. Are we law keepers or are we law breakers? We're law breakers. When we, think of a te- we look at a text and we see the presence of rules and we go, wow, Joseph really exemplifies what God means to be his people by the way he's obedient to the rules. What we're doing is we're setting up a false image of how we're supposed to be faithful to the Lord. We're faithful to the Lord by observing his rules. That's what we do in the text. And we end up giving an untruth, which is God is with those people who keep the rules. And if we combine both lies, we say those who keep the rules are blessed. That's what we end up doing. But that's not what I see here in the text. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll change the, as I read it or kind of paraphrase it, what I'm going to do is I'm going to infuse the idea of the front end of the text into this idea. So in the front end, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Everybody knew the Lord was with Joseph. Obviously, Joseph knew the Lord was with Joseph because Potiphar knew the Lord was with Joseph. It was so obvious, not because he had a good harvest one year, but because every single thing Joseph did, if he tripped over a rock, he exposed gold. If he, if he flushed something down the toilet, you know, next thing you know, 
corns growing up in the yard. Everything's just great for Joseph. Joseph this, Joseph that. He can't lose for trying. Everything, he's got the touch of God. It's so obvious that the Lord is with Joseph. And so when the woman, Potiphar's wife, says, sleep with me, this, this is how you should hear this, I think, is because the Lord has been with me, I have gained great trust in this home. Profound trust. No other slave in this household has what I have. I, though a slave, a nameless, worthless slave, because of the hand of God, have been given a position of prominence built on trust. Why would I sacrifice that? Besides, because the Lord is with me, every possession in this household has been given to me. The whole house is mine. I'm Lord of the estate because of God's being with me in my life. I don't know why it's happened. It's happened. The only thing God's kept from me is you. How thankless would it be before the Lord to take the one thing that he's held? And then... How then could I do this wicked thing against God? Do you notice, by the way, he doesn't say, how then could I do this wicked thing against Potiphar? He says, how then could I do this wicked thing against God? In Joseph's mind, it's not the rules that are at stake. It's the relationship with God that is at stake. God has been with Joseph, and he's obedient because he recognizes that God is with him, and he desires to honor him, which is how God's people are obedient. If you want to live a faithful life by following the rules, you will be unfaithful and unqualified before the Lord and you will not feel like the Lord is with you. You want to live a life where you're with God and you honor God and you love God and you cherish God and you recognize what God's done for you and you recognize what God saved you from and you recognize God the way that God answers your prayers and you recognize that every good and perfect gift on earth comes from God above and that it's because of grace and not because of merit, then you will, as a byproduct, be obedient. Our obedience is a byproduct of being in relationship with God. The New Testament, this is where the New Testament grabs the the law of Moses and bends it. The law of Moses says, obey. Christ comes along and says, you can't. I, through through the mercy of the Father, I can account for the sins, but you must have faith. And it's through grace and relationship with God that we obey. So here's, here's the lie. The lie is God makes rules and we obey them. And when we obey them, we keep him around. The lie is, as long as I'm obeying God, he's with me. But if I don't obey God, what does he do? He goes away. You know this. You know this. You have a bad week, a rough week. You're sinful. You're angry. You say things to your spouse or a friend you ought, didn't want to do. You looked at material you ought not have looked at or you, you coveted after something that really wasn't yours and will never be yours. You harbored an attitude of dissatisfaction because God's writing a different story than the one you wanted to write. And you know there's no way to get from this track to that track. Your life is boring because God willed it. And you're angry because of it. And then you kind of come out of that stupor and you feel like, oh, I was rotten. And it's so human for us to think that now God is far, far away. Like, how can I now pray? 
How can I pray? God is gone. Why would God hear me now? Because I've been so sinful. Don't you realize that God came to you in your sin? It's not because of your obedience that he rushed into your life. It is on account of our disobedience that he sent his son. It is a lie to say, God is with us when we obey. It is more appropriate for us to say that when we cherish the enduring presence of God and in doing so foster a holy sense of reverence and honor for who he is and what he's done, we obey. This is what Christ means when he says, remain in me and bear fruit. Remain in relationship with me as I am in the Father, and then you will obey. If we live these lies, then then what's about to happen causes great crisis. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Verse 13. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called to her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until her his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. If you believe that God blesses those he's with, now you're in trouble. And if you believe that blessing and God's presence come from being obedient, now you're in trouble. Because in this case, God was with Joseph and things went south. And Joseph was superlatively obedient. Who can be critical of that? Joseph bested most people and his behavior there. Day in and day out, Joseph was faithful. And this happens. This is a crisis if your faith is tweaked by these mild but powerful little lies. Is God, it is a blessing to be with God. That's it. That allows the contour of your life to go up and down, and you not have to be like, does God still love me? The question is, is God still with me? That allows your obedience not to bear immediate blessed fruit. Is it enough for God to say, I've called you to be an obedient people so that you can testify to truthfulness among a group of people who do not know the truth? If we're there, and if we're those people, will not our obedience at times produce ill fruit in our lives? Unfortunate, uncomfortable fruit in our lives. It is a blessing that the Lord is even with us. And a response to the blessing of having God with us 
is to live a life that's faithful and obedient. Which, ironically, the Bible is very careful to point out to here in the last verses of this chapter. So should the reader be confused about how could this possibly have happened to Joseph? Joseph, who had been so obedient. Joseph, who had had the Lord with him. Joseph, who was so blessed. Now he's in prison. But this is what the text says. Now just think of this, this side of the text with the original part of the chapter in mind. Listen to this. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. You see the parallel? So the, the warden put Joseph in charge of all he held in the prison. You see the parallel? And he was made responsible for all that he had done there. You see the parallel? And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Do you see the parallel? Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. It's as though the Lord is telling a story in Joseph's life. God has taken Joseph somewhere, and it's probably, it's certainly against his will. Joseph doesn't want to go to prison. Joseph doesn't want to be a slave. Joseph doesn't know where this is all going or where this is all headed. God's taking them there, but God is remaining with him. And sometimes in our minds, and I'll close with this thought, sometimes in our minds, we look at the life of Joseph and we say, because some of you have read your Bible and you know the story, you go, yeah, well, yeah. Well, yeah, but Joseph does end up getting blessed in the end. He ends up being Pharaoh, practically. He sits on the throne of Egypt, the, the greatest empire on the planet at that time. Joseph is essentially in charge of. And you say, so, you know, you say that blessing doesn't follow, but look at Joseph. He does end up, well, I'll say this. Joseph doesn't know that. Prison feels like prison to Joseph. Just like you don't know that. Actually, you do know that, don't you? You know that for all the trials and tribulations in this life, you will be brought high, high, high in heaven. You know how it's going to end. You know what the Lord's going to do. But we live in the moment. And in the moment when you're in prison, we just need to remember it is a blessing to be with the Lord. Amen.